Hey everyone, this is Rachel. And if this is your first time listening to the Hashtag History Podcast, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up about this episode in particular. In this week's episode, we had a bit of an extended introduction before launching into our weekly cocktail segment. If you are here just for our coverage of the Golden State Killer, you can skip ahead to about the 10 minute mark. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. We really hope you enjoy it. This is Hashtag History, episode 129. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And you know what I just realized we did not do once this season? What? We did not read off our outro in the intro. Oh. I know. Well, let's do it. Let's do it then. (laughs) We we try to do this at least once a season, and we totally neglected to do that this time around. What we like to do is read off our normal outro spiel in the intro at least once a season, just so that any of our listeners out there that peace out once they hear the outro music still get the chance to hear everything we share in our outro, because there's a lot of important information in there. Basically, we're forcing you to listen to it. We're just once a season. That's it. That's it. Once a season, we'll make it fast. Yeah. You can even put this on two times speed if you'd like to. Yeah. I feel like I'm already talking in two times (laughs) speed. (laughs) Okay, so for one, one of the things that we shared during our outro is that All of the sources used to put together each one of our episodes can be found on our website at hashtag history-pod.com should you wish to view those. Right. And then speaking of our website, that is a fantastic place to check out if you are interested in learning more about us, seeing past episodes, getting some cute merch and finding ways to support the show. Yes. And this is where I'm going to plug that we have some really, really cute merch. <laughs> I'm. It, this is definitely not biased at all. I don't when think... I, no, it's no, not biased to say no. that we have the cutest podcast merchandise out there. That's not... <laughs> yeah, that's not biased whatsoever. Right. But it, it is really cute. So if you want to check it out, head to our website. That's the place to do it. Yeah. And if you're interested in getting a discount on our merchandise, that's one of the perks of joining our Patreon. So our Patreon is only $1 a month, and it's just a place for listeners of the show to... To support the podcast, but in return, we do give you some perks, yes. uh, including a 15% off all merchandise. Behind the scenes content is also posted on there, and we mail you cards and stickers throughout the year. Yes. And finally, if you're not already following us on Instagram, be sure to do that. We are on Instagram at hashtag history podcast, and that really is the place you want to be if you're enjoying the show. We share all kinds of stuff on there the pictures that we discuss in the episodes, notifications every single time we release a new episode episode, announcements about guest shows that we're on or articles that we've written, cocktail pictures, the recipes, and so much more. So definitely make sure to check us out over there. (sighs) All right. See? Quick. See, it was quick and easy. No big deal. And and we won't well, no, I was going to say, I was like, and we won't put you through it again during the outro, but I'm pretty sure we'll repeat exactly what we just said in the outro. Right. All right. So with all of that out of the way, let's move on to this week's topic. And this week, you will definitely want to listen all the way through the outro because we will be announcing at the end of the episode who our special season finale guest is for next week's episode. She is very, very closely tied to this week's topic. So you're definitely going to want to hear who we are like so excited and honored to have on the show next week. Yeah. This week we will be discussing Joseph James D'Angelo, also known as the Golden State Killer. D'Angelo tormented the state of California, particularly here in the Sacramento area, very, very close to where we live, more specifically, very, very close to where we are sitting right now. Currently recording recording. this episode. Yes. Yes. 
He tormented the area for more than 10 years, committing burglaries, rapes, and murders. Due to his widespread crimes, it took investigators more than four decades to piece together the fact that the man that had become known as the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker were all the same person. In 2018, D'Angelo was finally caught after a family member of his had uploaded their DNA to a genetic genealogy site. He was charged and sentenced to life imprisonment in 2020. I really look forward to discussing this week's topic for a million reasons. One, because this case hits really close to home. Literally. Literally. Not not even... I mean, we I say mean, both. That, <laughs> it's both. But we say that phrase figuratively all the time. Like, this one really hits close to home for these reasons. Yeah. Literally, we could, could walk, walk there. That's what I was just going to say. We could walk yeah. to, like, the site of some of these crimes, yes. which is horribly terrifying. Uh-huh. These crimes were committed literal minutes from where we're sitting. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm really looking forward to our discussion about it. You've specifically grown up in this area. Yeah. And so you know it way better than I do. I, yeah. You had family that lived here like during. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I'll actually crimes. we'll get into a little bit. <gasps> yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion. And then the other reason why I'm really excited for this week's topic is because we're doing this one together. Yes! I love these. Much like our two-parter series on Princess Diana from last season, which, side note, we probably should have made this one a two-parter. I know. I was like, oh, this is a long one. <laughs> yeah. As the Google Doc got longer and longer, I was like, oh, my God. It's okay. <laughs> uh, but similar to our two-parter on Princess Diana from last season, Leah and I split up the research on this topic, so you'll get to hear from both of us as we switch back and forth throughout the episode. Yeah. These are some of my favorite ones. I love these ones. Yeah. These are the best ones. I do also really like just listening to you talk to <laughs> well, I, I would say exactly the same for when you take over episodes too. I just sit back and listen. Yeah. Um, but first, I'm just going to hand it off to you for Sweet. our cocktail segment. Cocktail slash mocktail. Yes. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. All right, so this is cocktail number two, I believe, Mm -hmm. two of three that was sponsored by our friend Tux from Beyond Reproach. Love him. Love him. We love him. Love Beyond Reproach. Yes. Go listen to them. Can't talk about it enough. Do we mention them in every episode? Possibly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is a drinking game is how many times we mentioned Beyond Reproach on our podcast. Yeah. So we mentioned in the intro, if you're interested in sponsoring a cocktail and getting a shout out on a future episode, you can do so by going to our website the support us page or there's also a link in our instagram bio bio. Mm -hmm. yeah so yes good stuff yes so you can support um a cocktail and thank you tux for supporting this one yeah so this week's cocktail i just wanted to tie it to california somehow right because it's the golden state killer these all everything we're going to be talking about took place in california Mm -hmm. and i also wanted something simple because i didn't think about the cocktail until this morning (laughs) i love it i love it so this is actually a really good one because basically as long as you have bourbon 
or whiskey of some sort in your cabinet, you can like you can make this cocktail. Perfect. It's called the Gold Rush Cocktail. <sighs> cocktail historians credit T.J. Siegel for crafting the original Gold Rush Cocktail at a now closed Milk and Honey um, restaurant or bar in New York City. Okay. And despite the Golden Cocktail's classic list of ingredients, it was actually first concocted in 2001. Oh. So pretty recently. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so it contains um, bourbon. Mm-hmm. I did two ounces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contains lemon juice, freshly squeezed lemon juice, which I did get lemons mm-hmm. um, and squeeze myself. Amazing. And then honey. But for our version of it, I had this like local orange blossom honey <gasps> kind of thing. So there's might be a little bit of like an orange blossom kind oh, of flavor to it. I can't wait. Um, and yeah, you just shake all that up or in our case stir it and then um you're supposed to put like a big ice cube in it i didn't have any so we just have regular ice cubes just regular ice cubes and then you garnish with the lemon peel it's really beautiful i'm so excited yeah it's very simple so simple love yeah it's a lot like the bee's knees that aj from cocktail cards talked to us about way back when (laughs) i wish i could remember what it was but i do remember it being like a two to three ingredient yeah it's essentially this but instead of bourbon it's with gin okay let's do it yeah cheers cheers just lemon lemony it's, goodness that's what i was gonna say it's <laughs> lemon <laughs> but i love lemon i do too <sighs> i think i'm gonna go all the way to 9.5 whoa because it is simple mm-hmm. it's beautiful it represents california which is one of my top five favorite things in the world mm-hmm. um top five in the whole world <laughs> uh as the rest of the world mostly by world i mean other states are imploding right um i grow to appreciate ours more and more totally yeah other than the fact yeah. that it's been raining nonstop for the last three weeks I that would know. be great if that stopped and it's just so refreshing i know yeah and i love lemon lemon and the honey <sighs> this is good it is good i'm gonna give it a nine okay that's that's good this is like my a classic go-to like I used to get um, Tennessee mm. whiskey honey, like the Jack Daniels honey whiskey. It's 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 really good. It's just like whiskey that mm-hmm. kind of has a honey flavor mm-hmm. to it. And then I would with just lemonade. And so it reminds me a lot of that. That sounds like a good summer drink. Yeah. Kind of just want to sit here and drink this the whole time. I mean, you do get a break. <laughs> you're right. I, you're right. I Not do right get away, a break. but you do get a break. <laughs> so I w- you're totally right. I will chug this shortly. <laughs> okay. That's really good. Thank mm-hmm. you. Of I course. love that. Yeah. Now, in addition to all of the sources that we will link to our website that helped us to put this episode together, I did want to mention one up top. I don't know if you've read it. Mm-mm. Okay. I if don't you read a lot of like true crime books. Okay. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> You're like, I don't I understand. Go. <laughs> I'm going to leave now. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> referring back to my script because I can't look you in the eyes anymore. <laughs> Our friendship might be over. No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) If you have not yet read Michelle McNamara's book, it's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I cannot recommend it enough. If you are interested in learning more about the Golden State Killer, this is the book to read. I bought it at a bookstore when I was on a work trip that my husband came along with, and we both ended up reading and finishing the book separately on this one trip. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah. And keep in mind that two of these days were full conference days for me. So <laughs> we, wow. we still managed both and to individually finish this book. you were day drinking too, if I remember. Was there this was, that same trip? That was that trip. Yeah. There was a lot of day drinking going on. <laughs> so perhaps I skimmed the book and came up, like I hallucinated half of it. Right. Uh, but what I remember of it was great. So that's, <laughs> that's how amazing this book is. We will definitely be talking about McNamara 
Nara more throughout this episode. But just to give a quick introduction to her, she was a true crime author who was absolutely obsessed with catching who she coined as the Golden State Killer. She spent so much time researching the case, interviewing witnesses, and writing it all in her novel before she sadly passed away in 2016 at the young age of 46, only two years before the Golden State Killer would be caught. Her book was released only a few months before his arrest, having been completed posthumously by friends and her husband, actor Patton Oswalt. Oh! Yeah. I didn't realize Patton Oswalt was her husband. Yes. He talks about her a lot Mm -hmm. how amazing she was he has these really wonderful interviews about like how he married a million steps out of his league when he married her and that like it took a lot of convincing on his part to like get her to (laughs) like him and he is really the force behind getting her book published he said like following her death because her death was really sudden it was really unexpected um that that was honestly like what woke him up every day and gave him purpose purpose and drive and stuff was to get her book published i know it's you should if you've never like listened to any interviews of him talking about her i think i have seen a few i just i I didn't make the connection that she's the one that wrote this book yes so he got that book published um and again we're going to be talking more about her and about her book later on but i wanted to give an, an introduction up top about her and also to say that if you don't read many true crime books, uh, <laughs> but you like to watch series TV shows and listen to podcasts. And listen to podcasts. Um, there is a series on HBO that was adapted from her All Be Gone in the Dark book. I started it years ago. I love obviously watching like true crime documentaries and I actually didn't finish it because it was just horribly sad Aww. because it's just the whole time they're talking about like she did this and then never got to see it come yeah, to fruition. Yeah, that's really sad. And then she did this. But she would never find out what happened. And and I just was like, I can't watch this. It was too sad. Yeah. But if you're interested in watching that, um, again, to learn more about the Golden State Killer and to learn more about her and her amazing contributions to the case, I believe it is still available on HBO. Wow. Yes. All right. Now to begin. Yes. We will be talking about the early life of Joseph James D'Angelo. And I hate that. We both hate that Mm -hmm. in the true crime industry. There's a lot of focus and emphasis placed on the killer and not the victims. So we certainly want to acknowledge up top that all of these victims were loved and valued and, uh, you know, members of the community and their loved ones really suffered a great loss as a result of these tragedies. But having said that, we will be starting off this episode (laughs) with a look at D'Angelo's life growing up. Yeah. D'Angelo was born on November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York, not Bath, England. No. (laughs) (laughs) And his father was in the military, so they were kind of all over the place uh, between Germany and the United States. They ended up moving to the Sacramento area, which was very common at the time. My Mm. mom's side of the family was in the Air Force, lived in Germany for a bit, and then ended up here. Okay. At the same time. Do you know why? Sacramento was such a common uh, spot. So um, Mather, Mather mm-hmm. was was an actual working That's right. Air Force base. That's right. At the time. Mm-hmm. he They ended up moving to Sacramento area when D'Angelo was still a kid, and he would attend Mills Junior High School here in Rancho Cordova, which mm. my dad's whole side of the family went to. Our One of our best friends, Lisa, went to. Um, so yeah, why are we talking about where he went to middle school and high school? I'm sure you're wondering. Yeah, because typically we don't <laughs> care. <laughs> yeah. We don't care that you went to Abraham Lincoln Middle School. Uh, but we wanted to mention it because... 
all of these locations are just a stone's throw away from where we are currently recording. And it's very eerie and also very close to where these crimes eventually will happen. Yeah. So it, it makes sense to kind of mention that he grew up here. It wasn't yes. like his crimes just randomly happened here. He grew up in this neighborhood. Yes. From what I understand, no one in the family was particularly close with uh, the dad when he was transferred to another state due to his military occupation. His wife and kids were like, no, we'll just stay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they stayed back here in California. D'Angelo did not graduate from high school and would instead obtain a GED in 1964. And the same year, he would follow in his dad's footsteps by also joining the military. He joined the U.S. Navy and would serve during the Vietnam War. And part of why we mentioned that, too, and we'll touch shortly on his uh, law enforcement career as well, is that when he was eventually caught, it was jarring to so many people that he was like, one of their own or you know to law enforcement that they were arresting a former member member yeah. of the military and of, of law, law enforcement, enforcement. Mm-hmm. and that's really really disturbing and a lot of that training is why he was for lack of a better word successful mm-hmm. um throughout his horrendous crimes yeah In 1968, he began attending Sierra College and graduated with an associate's degree in police science. And again, like, is it even worth mentioning that this junior college is close Close to us? Yeah, like, does does that come as a shock to anyone? And then in 1971, he began at Sacramento State, Mm. um, which perhaps you can speak more to this, but I did look up some recent stats Mm -hmm. that say that nearly 60% of Sacramento State students are Sacramento residents. Yeah. And I can confidently say that of my college, college educated friends probably and this may even be like a low number probably about 70 percent or more of them attended sacramento state like if you are from this area chances are and and you went on to go to college yeah chances are you went to sac state unless you moved Moved away away. yeah Yeah, i think i i've even heard somewhere and this is just off the top of my head from Mm -hmm. my memory that it's like 80 percent of college educated people in the area went to sac state Mm. that tracks with when i think through my list of friends that went to college Mm -hmm. majority of them went to sac state yeah it is our big university here and it really is a central location for events and life in the sacramento area so yet again creepy his association with all of these places that are so local and familiar to us he graduated from sac state with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice (sighs) he would later attend a college in visalia and do an internship in Roseville to help further the law enforcement career that he began in 1973. And Roseville is like a another, it's like a <laughs> suburb essentially of Sacramento. Yeah, and I was going to say another stone's throw away. It's it's a it's a farther stone. Yeah, you, you, you have throw to throw really hard. You have to throw really hard, <laughs> but not that hard. Yeah, my my parents now live just outside of Roseville. So, yeah. Oh my god, it's crazy. He began as a police officer with the Exeter Police Department. Which is not near us. Exeter is near Visalia, which is probably best described as somewhere between Fresno and Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. He would work here for roughly three years before he began working with the Auburn Police Department, which is near us. Another stone's throw. Another stone's throw until he was fired from there in 1979 for shoplifting. Hmm. To wrap up our coverage of his personal life before we begin on the crimes, we'll briefly cover his romantic relationships, mostly because one of them is creepily relevant to his later crimes. Around roughly 1970, D'Angelo was engaged to a fellow Sierra College student named Bonnie Colwell. 
Colwell would end up breaking off the engagement, though, when he became a total creep. Over the course of their relationship, she had noticed a number of things about him that she didn't like. For one, he was insatiable during sex. She said he would climax, then stop, just to return, start over again, and then ejaculate. And he would do this over and over and over for hours at a time. No, thank you. (laughs) No, thank you. He also (laughs) hunted animals illegally and cut them up. And finally, for her, what was the last straw was he asked her to cheat on an exam for him, which I I, love how that's the last straw, not mutilating animals (laughs) or or, uh, kind of being a sex addict a sex addict and yeah. kind of creepy in the bedroom doing something in the bedroom that you're not comfortable yeah. with or it's certainly not on the same level yeah it was the cheating on the exam that she was like i absolutely <laughs> I can do nothing more here <laughs> she really was like an amazing student um apparently she even like tutored other students so she was amazing and he was failing a course in abnormal psychology huh. and interesting it's ironic very ironic and colwell refused to cheat on this exam for him she broke off the engagement and just days later she would wake up to taps on her bedroom window late at night Mm -mm. when she looked out her window she saw d'angelo standing there with a gun he demanded that she meet him outside so they could run off to reno together to get married and someone's not like reading the signs here like i have broken up with you i am certainly not gonna run off and marry you Especially when you're threatening me with a gun, with a gun yeah. outside my bedroom window. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, Colwell was still living at home with family at the time. So she was able to race off to tell her father who took care of the situation and got D'Angelo to leave. Thank God that didn't end badly. It could have ended horrendously. She could have been his first victim. Yeah. I mean, she is in some ways his first victim, she, but she could have been his first murder victim. She and D'Angelo would never see each other again, with the exception of an awkward almost run-in at a grocery store a few years later. Mm -hmm. But D'Angelo never stopped thinking about Colwell. As we will discuss later when covering the crimes, the world would later learn that while he was assaulting a woman from Davis in what would be his 37th home invasion, D'Angelo would sob, quote, I hate you, Bonnie. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Unquote. (sighs) D'Angelo would marry a woman named Sharon Huddle in 1973. They would live in Citrus Heights together, a neighborhood here in Sacramento County and the same area of at least one of his victims, Mm -hmm. until the two of them would eventually separate in 1991, though Huddle would not officially file for divorce until 2018 after D'Angelo had been arrested. That's crazy. I know. (laughs) I tried to get more information on that and wasn't able to. I'm like, how do you go 30 years? Yeah. How do you go 30 years? Just separated. Separated, but but not actually divorced. Yeah. And then officially like, oh, you're the Golden State Killer. I will be filing papers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They would have three daughters together and... I don't, we don't talk about this really in this episode. I don't know that I feel super comfortable talking about like his poor family that's been through so much. But the little bit that I have heard is they were all shocked Mm -hmm. to find this out about their dad. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the crimes. And as we have often done on this podcast, we're going to issue a little trigger warning. Some of these crimes are pretty gruesome and heinous. We never go into depth with details of rape and murder, but it is important to go into some level of detail Mm -hmm. um so we just wanted to warn you all of that now his crimes are broken up into three main categories the visalia ransacker the east area rapist and the original night stalker 
And that's how we're going to approach our coverage of the crimes by breaking them into these three sections. It's important to note the reason why his crimes are broken up into these three categories. And that is because initially authorities did not assume that all of these crimes were being committed by the same person. And they therefore grouped them together kind of based on location. He did move right. around. And, and this is something I'm sure we'll discuss later. I know I talk about later. Even now, it's hard to get law enforcement agencies to communicate with one another. Certainly back in like the 70s and 80s, they were not cross-referencing crimes with one another. Right. Yeah. And and I also it's like generally serial killers stay within the same Mm. area. So Mm. it's not unheard of or unfathomable to think they wouldn't connect. They wouldn't connect it. Sure. And we'll also learn that the crimes in each area differed a lot yes. as well so i i could also see it's like this isn't his same mo, MO. like mm-hmm. i could see why they didn't make that connection i'm looking forward to us talking about that even though that is the really awfully gruesome part yeah some of his trends or yeah. traits but they do differ yeah from case to case mm-hmm. totally so i'm going to start with the visalia ransacker crimes before then passing things off to leah to tell us about the east area rapist crimes mm-hmm. Beginning in 1973 or 1974, a series of burglaries, attempted murders, and one murder would occur throughout Visalia over the course of the next few years. The first incident occurred on March 19, 1974, when a family noticed $50 worth of coins had been stolen from a piggy bank within their house. This is so creepy. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I can't imagine just looking at, like, we have a little coin collection thing where we just throw our extra coins and then like just suddenly seeing it empty yes. and neither of us did it. Yes. That's, that's terrifying. 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 And everything else is the same. <laughs> and I mean, that's the other thing too. So, I mean, <laughs> there's so many tangents, but yeah, the Visalia area would continue to experience numerous petty theft incidents like this mm-hmm. with people waking up to find that small amounts of money, women's underwear, small jewelry and weapons were stolen. It's just so creepy. Yeah. And it, it it's unfathomable for me as someone that isn't studied in criminal justice or criminal psychology yeah. to understand the psychology of how someone gets off on going into someone's home and stealing underwear, underwear, stealing coins from a kid's piggy bank yeah. just to freak that family out, just to put them on edge. It, it's terrifying. Yeah. Things escalated on September 11th, 1975, when D'Angelo broke into the home of a 45-year-old Visalia man named Claude Snelling. At approximately 2 a.m., Snelling heard strange noises, so he got up to go investigate. He was shocked to find a masked man attempting to kidnap his 16-year-old daughter. In his attempt to get his daughter, Snelling was shot twice and would later die from his wounds. The masked man would kick Snelling's daughter in the face multiple times before taking off and leaving a stolen bicycle nearby. This crime certainly escalated things in the eyes of law enforcement, and they even issued a reward for what is the equivalent of nearly $20,000 in today's money to anyone that had any information that could lead to the ransacker's arrest. These efforts were unsuccessful, and the ransacker would strike again only a few months later. On December 12th of that same year, a detective named William McGowan was staked out near a location that was reported to be frequented by the masked ransacker. He was purposefully staked out there to see if he could see him. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, at about 8.30 that evening, McGowan spotted a masked man sneaking into someone's backyard. McGowan fired off a warning shot to which the ransacker appeared to initially respond like he looked like he was going to surrender mm-hmm. but then shortly thereafter he jumped over a fence and then pulled out his own gun shooting at mcgowan and actually hit his flashlight the ransacker was able to escape 
Those are the primary crimes that we know to be attributed to the Visalia Ransacker, although there certainly may be more. Ultimately, it's believed that the Visalia Ransacker was responsible for approximately 120 burglaries, the murder of Claude Snelling, the attempted kidnapping of his daughter Beth Snelling, and the attempted murder of William McGowan. (sighs) (sighs) Horrible, creepy, terrifying. Yeah, and that's just the beginning. (laughs) It's just the beginning. So the next category of D'Angelo's crimes we're going to focus on were called the East Area Rapist Crimes. Mm -hmm. And they took place between 1976 and 1979 throughout East Sacramento and beyond. And even just look at the escalation of his moniker, like he went from the ransacker to to the rapist. He's a rapist. So (sighs) just buckle up and, and another trigger warning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before I begin, I this is kind of where I wanted. I mentioned that I have like family that lives in the area and stuff. So I just I have to say I personally, until researching for this episode, didn't realize that this extremely extremely long list of crimes and attacks took place only over three years. That's kind of hard for me to fathom. Nor did I realize until looking at a map of the exact locations of the attack, just how close many of them were to my current home, my job, Mm. the dance studio we both Mm -hmm. dance at, the home my dad's entire family were living in during this time period. And the list kind of goes on and on. It's actually kind of creepy to me how many connections I have to the locations. Yes, I'm sure. So I asked my mom, who was in high school at the time and lived in Fair Oaks, which is also in East Sacramento, about it. And she said, without skipping a beat, she slept with a knife under her pillow during this time period. I hate that. How oldish was your mom have been? High school. Oh, my God. I hate that so much. Yeah. My dad, who was in, um, like... I think he went to community college during this time, said that his old paper route from when he was in high school went past one of the houses where an attack occurred. I say all this because these crimes happening so close to home, literally and figuratively, Mm -hmm. has made me a hundred percent more shocked and even more empathetic more empathetic Mm -hmm. than i already previously was to not only the victims and the families that were affected by this but also the entire community who was living in total fear due to this one man's actions it's it's just i it's kind of hard for me to imagine if this was happening now how i would feel oh yeah i talked to my dad i told him we were recording this episode and i just asked what he remembered and he his memory was just that growing up in Sacramento, every woman was terrified. Yeah. Like going to bed every night. I mean, terrified. My, my husband, he's about to go out of town for work. I would, I wouldn't be staying in this house. Absolutely not. If this was happening. Absolutely not. Because the terrifying thing about this case is he was, and I I don't want to get too far ahead Mm -hmm. of things. I'm certain you're about to say. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't like single woman walking on a bike path or something like that, which is a whole other separate story that a woman should be safe in that setting as well. But this is inside your home Mm -hmm. with your family. Yeah. Like with other people. Yeah. And he would still break in Mm -hmm. and violate you. Yeah. (sighs) 
it's just it's it's really hard to even fathom or imagine but the entire area was going through this at mm-hmm. this time mm-hmm. so after moving back to sacramento in 1976 d'angelo's crimes escalated from burglaries to violent rapes in citrus heights carmichael and rancho cordova aka the east sacramento area aka where we're currently recording <laughs> D'Angelo started off targeting mostly middle-class women who he had witnessed were alone in single-story homes. Mm -hmm. Most of these homes were near schools, creeks, or trails, which isn't hard to do in East Sacramento as you're pretty much always near one or multiple of those Mm -hmm. things. Some examples include Cordova High, where my father's entire family went to high school around this time, the American River Bike Trail, where I go for my daily walks, and Sacramento State, where I work. So oh all God. in all, <laughs> I think it's safe to say I would have been screwed. I really hate that. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. Most victims later reported to have witnessed a stranger on their property prior to the attacks, some even experiencing break-ins before the rape. Mm-hmm. Police believed this was a recon for mm-hmm. D'Angelo, where he would methodically stake out a potential victim's home sometimes entering through unlocked windows, unloading any guns he found in the home ahead of time, and then sometimes he would even plant ropes or other ligatures for his later use. Oh my god. He would even go so far as to telephone victims months before his attacks, doing everything in his power to learn their routines and to kind of creep them out, which we'll get into all those phone calls in more detail later. D'Angelo would usually break in through an unlocked window or a sliding glass door, and he would wake up his victims with a flashlight, threaten them with a handgun, bind their hands and legs with rope or often shoelaces, blindfold, and then often gag them with towels. Oh my god. After numerous attacks, D'Angelo changed his modus operandi, if you will, and began targeting couples instead of women who were alone or with their children in the home. Mm -hmm. This change was likely due to actually like as a response to news coverage that stated he only attacked women alone in their homes. So during these instances, he would force the woman to bind the male companion first before then she was bound. Then he would often set dishes on the male's back, threatening to kill everyone if he even heard them rattle. He would typically move the woman to the living room and then he would repeatedly rape her. And can you imagine as the partner in that scenario you're defenseless you're defenseless and you can't move it's not like oh i'm defense it's like you can't even move because you have some dishes or whatever Mm -hmm. on top of you that'll instantly notify him of your movement yep you would have to you listen to your partner getting raped and potentially killed yeah he would often stay in the house for hours after the attacks he would eat their food and ransack their house and often he would then return to rape the women again disturbing it's so disturbing it's like you have to sit there after just having been raped yeah and listen to this guy like make a sandwich in yes. your kitchen and i don't it's just so it's, yeah it's just, it's we can't even talk about it. We can't explain it. We can't describe it. No. And that was something in I'll Be Gone in the Dark, the book, that several victims would say they would almost take like a sigh of relief because they wouldn't hear him for, yeah. it'd be like half an hour to an hour. Yeah. They wouldn't hear him. They'd be like, oh my God, I can finally get up. I can mm-hmm. finally call authorities. And they would hear him in the fridge. Yeah. That is so horrifically terrifying. Yeah. 
D'Angelo often left with personal objects from the homes and occasionally he would also leave with cash, like petty cash, like you said, Mm -hmm. for his previous crimes. And sometimes with the firearms that were in the house, he would actually steal the firearms. He would creep away quietly, leaving the victims unsure if he had left or not. (laughs) It's just to to what you said. And it was believed to have left on foot or bicycled for most of the attacks and incidents, making use of the nearby parks and yards and schoolyards to stay off of the streets. Between June 18, 1976 and July 5, 1979, D'Angelo committed 50 rapes mm-hmm. in this manner, mostly in the East Sacramento area, but extending as far as San Jose, San Ramon, and Walnut Creek and other East Bay areas. <sighs> I also wanted to touch on a murder during this time period that doesn't really fit the same mold of D'Angelo's crimes. In February of 1978, a young married couple in Rancho Cordova, Katie and Brian Maggiore, were walking their dogs. They fled after a confrontation with a man in the street, but were ultimately chased down and shot to death. Mm. Their deaths were suspected by the FBI to be connected to the East Area Rapist crime spree during this time period and during his trial, which we'll get into later, he did plead guilty to their murders. Two two of three sprees. Yeah, two of three sprees done. I just feel like I have nothing to say because it's so scary. Like I watched a documentary about this too and this one woman was telling a story about how it was like the morning, her, her husband and her son are at home. Husband leaves for work. Mm-hmm. So she hears the garage door go up. She hears the garage door come down. And she's like, okay, cool. My husband has left. Within seconds, she heard the East Area Rapist running down her hallway. So he had been waiting out somewhere. It's just, it's so scary how an average morning can turn into something like that. It, no matter how much you defend yourself and defend mm-hmm. your home, he still found ways yeah, well, to watch your every move. And he was methodical and, about yeah. it. Like he, people believe now that he would literally stake out houses. There were, there's tons of stories of people and women in the area that saw someone stalking their house mm-hmm. and they didn't ever end up getting raped. Yeah. And maybe it's because they didn't, he couldn't find that right perfect time. Yeah. But like he, he learned their schedules. He learned when they would be alone or when a good easy time would be to come in and find them unawares and unprepared mm-hmm. like he he was methodical it's so scary i think the the biggest thing about his crimes that in doing all this research really mm-hmm. like struck me and kind of it makes it more eerie mm-hmm. and just disturbing to me is it wasn't a quote-unquote crime of passion or anger or rage or anything he's methodical yes. it's like he's thinking these things through it's not like a Oh, whoops, I accidentally killed someone. You know what I mean? He spent all of his free time doing this. And then to tack on to that, he had a wife and family for a lot of this. I can't even, like, how? I don't understand how you could go home and then just live a normal life with someone after this. It's so sickening. Yeah. In mid-1979, D'Angelo moved to Southern California and was already committing horrendous crimes there by October of that year. These crimes are known as those committed by the original Night Stalker. He was actually originally called just the Night Stalker, but Richard Ramirez, unfortunately, another one of California's infamous serial killers. We have a lot. Yeah. Uh, he would, Ramirez would end up with that same nickname. So D'Angelo's was changed to include the word original. Mm-hmm. The victims of the first crime committed here were the only to escape alive. 
On October 1st, 1979, D'Angelo broke into the home of a couple living in Santa Barbara County. He tied them up and threatened to kill them. The woman screamed loudly enough to alert a neighbor of hers who happened to be an FBI agent. D'Angelo escaped from the house, uh, the FBI agent pursuing after him for a period of time. Authorities would later discover a bike and a knife left behind by the original Night Stalker. And to go again to what you were saying about him being so methodical, so many of these bikes were stolen. So he has to have known where he could pick up the bike, where he could drop it off at. Yep. Two months later, on December 30th, another Santa Barbara County couple, Robert Offerman and Deborah Alexandra Manning, were found dead in their condo. Again, a stolen bike was found abandoned near the scene of the crime. On March 13th, 1980, a Ventura couple was found murdered in their home. It was found that the wife, Charlene Smith, had been raped. Both Charlene and her husband, Lyman, had been tied up with a unique knot known as a diamond knot which was interestingly the same type of knot used in at least one of the East Area Rapist cases. And I saw that that was for a very short period of time, which is why I didn't mention it. His name that was given to him was the Diamond Knot Killer for a very brief period of time. Yeah. On August 19th, another couple was found dead in Dana Point. Again, the female partner, a woman named Patrice Harrington, was found to have been raped. And again, both Patrice and her husband Keith had been tied up. On February 6th of the following year, 1981, a woman living in Irvine, Manuela Whithun, was found raped and murdered in her home. We know now, uh, you talked about this, Leah, that D'Angelo's MO was often to assault and kill couples Mm -hmm. at this point. So this particular crime might seem a little different for him in that he entered the home of a single woman. Mm -hmm. However, it's definitely worth noting that Whithun was indeed married and her husband just happened to be away that evening. Uh, He was actually in the hospital that night. So it makes me wonder... Like, did he intend to... Yes. On July 27th, a couple, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez, were found murdered in their Santa Barbara County home. Domingo had been raped and both were found to have been restrained. On May 4th of 1986, an 18-year-old woman named Janelle Lisa Cruz was found raped and murdered in her Irvine home. She would be the youngest and last known murder victim of the original Night Stalker. Cruz's sister shared that she later learned that Cruz had actually asked one of her male friends to come stay with her that evening, the same evening that she would be murdered, because she was scared. We can't know exactly why now, you know, she was scared, but Based on what you were saying, maybe we can assume that perhaps she had spotted D'Angelo stalking her earlier that day or even earlier weeks. All right. So I hinted at this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to touch very brief. Well, it's not going to be that brief. Sorry. (laughs) On the truly disturbing phone calls D'Angelo made between 1976 and into the 2000s. So he was making phone calls during all three of these different crime sprees. And beyond. And beyond. The last murder that we know of was in 86. Yeah. And so... I think I mentioned earlier that D'Angelo would often conduct a sort of recon of his victims before attacking, and this would often include phone calls. Often these phone calls would seem to be nothing out of the ordinary. For instance, one time he called a victim the night before he attacked her, claiming to be a roofer, Mm. and only later did she figure out, like, there's no way that was, like, my dad wasn't waiting for a call from a roofer. That Like, that doesn't make sense. (sighs) It doesn't fit. But other times, they were much, much more terrifying. D'Angelo would whisper threats and breathe heavily. And these calls were not limited to his future victims, but also to law enforcement agencies. (sighs) So brazen. Yeah. 
In October of 1976, after a string of hangups, a victim received a call and lost her patience. She screamed, quote, stop calling like this. The police know about it and they know who you are. The caller responded by whispering, quote, I'm going to kill your husband, mm-hmm. end quote, prompting the victim to hang up out of fear. She was attacked that night. <sighs> On March 19, 1977, between 4.15 and 5 p.m., the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office received two calls from a man who said he was the East Side rapist, laughed, and then he hung up. Ew. These calls were followed by a third where the man again identified himself as the East Side rapist and said he had a next victim already stalked before hanging up. The 15th victim was attacked a few hours later. Oh, my God. In December of 1977, SAC PD received a call from a man who said, quote, you're never going to catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb effers. I'm going to F again tonight. Be careful, end quote. This call was recorded and later released to the public. And unfortunately, D'Angelo's next victim was indeed that night. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they're really disturbed. Like, I, I went and I listened to some of them. And he, it's... <sighs> I've heard one of them. He like whispers and it's one, it's really, really creepy. Mm -hmm. It's like really, if I heard this, I would, I don't think I could sleep ever again. No. It's so disturbing. Yeah. And just so brazen to be calling law enforcement too. And to even just so brazen knowing that he would get away with this because he would call and then commit the crime. Yeah. (sighs) On December 9th, a previous victim So someone he had already raped. Mm. Someone who's already been violated, petrified. Yeah. Scarred for the rest of her life. She received a mysterious phone call from someone who said, quote, Merry Christmas. It's me again. Mm -mm. She attributed this call to her attacker. Mm -hmm. The following day on December 10th, Sacramento authorities received and recorded two more calls from someone saying, quote, I'm going to hit tonight. Watt Avenue. (gasps) Yeah, we're very close to Watt Avenue. Yep. Patrols were increased in the area, and at 2.30 a.m. that night, a masked man escaped officers after being seen on the Watt Avenue Bridge, which, again, is right here. Right here. Right here. An actual stone throwaway. Yeah. In January of 1978, a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist called a counseling service line, and he stated, I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. But then he hung up soon thereafter, stating he thought he was being recorded and traced. In addition to these disturbing calls to his future victims and law enforcement, the East Area Rapist was also known to call and taunt his previous victims. That wasn't a one-time occurrence. Um, Sometimes he would do this for months and months following their attacks, and in some cases, like decades. That speaks to how evil, evil, evil he is. Mm -hmm. I can't even fathom that. You have already done the worst thing that could ever happen to this person and then you continue to haunt them. Like that actually makes me a little bit emotional. I'm trying to like... I know. I was getting a little choked up there. I... That is... It's it's pure evil. evil. It's evil. (sighs) In early January of 1978, the first known East Area rapist victim who had also been receiving an onslaught of calls following her attack, received first an apparent wrong number call, which police suspected to be the East Area Rapist. And then this call was followed by a second call who the victim recognized to be her attacker. The caller breathed heavily for about 20 seconds, then kept whispering, quote, gonna kill you, and quote, 
bitch before hanging up. This was by far the most disturbing of the calls for me to listen to personally. This is the only one I've heard. It's it's really disturbing. Mm -hmm. In 1982, a previous Contra Costa County victim received a call at her place of work, a Denny's. Oh my God. From a man threatening to, quote, rape her again. Uh, Authorities think that like he might have just like happened upon her. Like he didn't know he worked at Denny's. He might have just happened upon her like he was a patron at Denny's and then saw her and was like, oh, yay, I get to taunt her. Oh, my God. Yeah. Which is worse. One, that he was stalking her and knew exactly where she worked. Or that because he continued to live and be a part of the community and and be a part of the community that he was assaulting and killing. Yeah. He would walk into a Denny's on a Saturday morning with his family to have pancakes and bump into one of the women that he had harmed. Yeah. In 1991, another previous victim received a phone call and spoke with the person on the line for a whole minute. She claimed she could hear a woman and children in the background, Mm -hmm. leading to the speculation that the assailant had a family. On April 6, 2001, a day after an article in our local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, linked the Night Stalker to Southern California and the East Area Rapist in Sacramento, a former victim received a call and was asked, quote, remember when we played, end quote. Evil. These are just a few of the many, many calls that continued through the early 2000s, though they did become much less frequent after 1979. Much like you were just saying, in my personal opinion, these phone calls he made to his former victims display just how twisted and absolutely cruel and evil mm-hmm. D'Angelo really is Mm -hmm. he tormented his victims and their families in some cases for decades following his initial assaults this is what makes it clear he had no remorse for what he did no remorse and how does anyone ever the fact that any of these not just the women the the male partners that listen to their their partners yeah being raped and and being worried about sometimes children being in the home and if their children were going to be harmed How do any of these people ever move on? Especially if you are one of these people that he is continuing to torment for decades to come. Mm -hmm. The resilience of these people is pretty unfathomable and pretty admirable that you could ever move on in any sense of the word. Yeah. Not that they moved on. I don't think that was the appropriate way to say it. No. Yeah. But I get get what you're saying. The the resilience of them. Yeah. And living with the torment. Mm hmm that continued Mm -hmm. hey everyone we are so excited to share with you about macy's wine shop yes it is that macy's Macy's has launched their very own wine shop, which includes full-size, delicious wines curated by their experts coming from renowned wine regions, which include our home state of California and beyond. You can select exactly what type of wine you are looking for. Do you love reds? Do you love whites? Maybe a little bit of both? You can make these personalized selections quickly and easily through the Macy's Wine Shop. What makes Macy's Wine Shop better than any other online wine club is that they deliver quality wines at unmatched price points, all within one to three business days. Seriously, I ordered my wine on a Monday and had already received them by that following Wednesday. 
And with our link, you get $50 off a six bottle box of Macy's award-winning wines, which is a $95 retail value. Head to the show notes of this episode to access the discount code, or you can head to our Instagram to find the link in our bio. Cheers. Now we are on to the investigation, and we truly cannot touch on this topic without again mentioning Michelle McNamara. I mentioned her early on in the episode. She was the author of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and she truly dedicated her life to solving this case. She was obsessed with this case. To say that you or I are interested in true crime is is nothing, it's nothing. compared to McNamara. <laughs> Which we learned. It, we it, learned at CrimeCon. That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> I was just going to share an experience that we had at CrimeCon. <laughs> I think you probably already know which one I'm talking about, where we we went to the bathroom (laughs) and we could like hear women in the bathroom, like arguing with each other over the bathroom stalls about like alibis and stuff. Right. And it it, it wasn't just like a, you know, a conversation. We we had a conversation about like, I wonder what really happened to John Ramsey. A heated, heated argument. Yes. Yeah. Down to friendships are over now. (laughs) They have ended at CrimeCon 2022. (laughs) Like heated. Yeah. uh, Down to the finest detail. We are not like that. We are no. not into true crime like that. That is, in fact, when we looked at each other and we were like, crime con's fun, but uh, are we in the right place? It was either that moment or when I thought a bra was going to get thrown on stage for <laughs> Keith Morrison. My God. <laughs> I literally was like, the- they're fangirling over Keith right now. And, and it was like the questions that people had for Keith, which... It was a whole panel of Dateline yeah, anchors. It was just for Keith. It was Let's for be clear. Keith. Yeah, correct. Let's be clear. <laughs> and people just wanted to hear him talk. They yeah. asked him, like, what cereal do you eat for breakfast? And like, then he said it, and then people squealed. Squealed. Okay, I, would, I did stand up. <laughs> well, yeah. I, did, I, I did join the crowd. I was a follower. Um, yeah, I think CrimeCon was definitely our... Awakening. Awakening, yeah. certainly. But what I would say, although that is us, McNamara would have 100% been one of those people yeah. arguing over the bathroom stalls which i'm not making fun of them no. at all good on them i just it made me realize like oh am i a true crime <laughs> <No>. fan <laughs> same yeah. same and i feel like i watch like every documentary yeah. ever and i was like i have no idea about half the stuff we're talking about <laughs> but mcnamara would have she knew every detail about every case particularly those related to Eron's. that's the name that was given to d'angelo around this time as an acronym for east area rapist slash original night stalker She had started a blog titled True Crime Diary, where she talked about a number of cold cases, but she found herself continually drawn back to the Iran's case. She would log into message boards with other what she called citizen sleuths. She spoke directly with witnesses. She met with law enforcement who shared information with her that was otherwise unknown to the public. She wrote about the case in the Los Angeles magazine and eventually made the decision to put all of her hard work together in a book. We have McNamara to thank for so much in this case, one of the biggest being coining the name Golden State Killer. She knew that Eron's was not a catchy name at all. It's not catchy enough for it to stick or for people to care about. And Mm -hmm. so she helped coin the name Golden State Killer and really got it pushed into not only the social narrative, but in law enforcement as well. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned early in the episode, McNamara would sadly pass before the Golden State Killer was caught. She passed on April 21st, 2016 at the age of 46. Her death was eventually ruled an accidental overdose. 
Following her death, her husband, actor Patton Oswald, along with friends, had her book completed and published in February of 2018. It would reach number two on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction and would remain on the list for 15 weeks. According to some of her close friends that were assisting her in her research, they feel confident that in the months leading up to her death, she was getting really close to finding the true identity of the Golden State Killer. Oh. So why did it take so long to capture Joseph James D'Angelo? The primary reason, which we've already discussed numerous times, is because law enforcement agencies did not communicate with one another to determine that all of these crimes, which had spanned 11 California counties, had been committed by a singular person. And to go to what you said, not only, I, I would say a failure on their part for not communicating with one another, but also... It changed over time. It morphed. Yeah, I was going to say, and also... I don't want to use the word innocent failure, but like understandable failure in some senses that they were in three separate distinct areas. Yeah. And when we say 11 counties in California, I don't know that people understand how big (laughs) California is. You can drive from the top of the state to the bottom of the state and it'll take you about 12 plus Mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. And that's going 100 miles an hour on the freeway, as we all do. Yes. (laughs) California. (laughs) Yes. So that... I mean, I hope that kind of puts into perspective, like his crimes were widespread Mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. They were not like, you know, oh, a couple hours apart. No, we're talking like some of them were 10 hours away from the other ones. Yes. Which is really a really, really long distance here in California. I was telling Leah recently about this funny video I saw of this lady that she lives in San Francisco and like one of her out of state friends was like, hey, girl, I'm so excited. I'm coming to California. I'm going to be in L.A. Let's get together. It's like, and no. Yeah, no. <laughs> the original girl was like, I'm in San Francisco. And the other chick's like, yeah, but it's in California, right? She's like, yes. Also, it's still like six hours away. Yeah. It's California, as you all know, when you look on, on a map, is huge. Yeah. It takes us forever to get anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I can also understand when something spans across 11 California counties that this was so widespread and it just was not assumed that there could be a singular person behind all of these horrendous crimes. Yeah. There are other theories that the early crimes, particularly the rapes, simply were not taken seriously by law enforcement and were therefore not prioritized and investigated properly. One of D'Angelo's earliest victims said, quote, in 1976, women were treated more like suspects than victims when it came to rape. My sense of importance in this world diminished with this treatment, unquote. Oh, my gosh. It wouldn't be until more recent years, thanks to advances in DNA testing, that the crimes committed by the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and the original Night Stalker were finally determined to have been committed by one man and one man alone. In 2001, DNA finally linked the murders to the rapes four decades later, and law enforcement finally found the connection between several of these cases. All I have to say is, thank God for the foresight of the investigators of all of these things to collect things that Mm -hmm. had the DNA on it, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't at the time have the the means to test it or whatever, just knowing that that might come down the line. (sighs) I think that about that every time I watch Forensic Files, which is every night to go to sleep. Right. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. It's not everyone's... How else do you uh, fall yeah, asleep? How else would one fall asleep except to the <laughs> doo 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 <laughs> How else does anyone fall asleep? I mean, so many of those cases are solved because someone had the forethought yeah. to keep DNA regardless of their their lack of capacity or, or means yeah. to even do anything with it. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. 
In 2016, law enforcement publicly renewed their efforts to solve the case. And in December of 2017, investigators, including Detective Paul Holes, whom we saw at CrimeCon this last year, uploaded the assailant's DNA that had been collected from one of the Ventura rape cases to a website called JedMatch. JedMatch, similar to other websites such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe, is an online service that you can upload your DNA to in order to help you establish your family tree. Super cool concept. Unless, of course, you're a serial killer. Right. <laughs> and unbeknownst to D'Angelo, one of his family members had uploaded his own DNA to one of these websites. So it was out there and available to test against. Investigators got a handful of hits and weeded their way down until there was just D'Angelo left. In April of 2018, investigators collected DNA from both D'Angelo's car door handle and from a tissue that had been thrown away in his outdoor trash can. Both of these matched for the Golden State Killer. Could you imagine getting that hit on the online DNA site? Like, I can't as an investigator after that long and getting that first initial hit. And just how lucky that is that that family member was like, I wonder who my great, 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 great grandpa is on my dad's side. Yeah. Or like, I wonder what percentage Italian I am. (laughs) Exactly. That's more so what it is to figure out your your origins. And then, then, I mean, just thank God for that, man. I know. I'm I'm glad that you just said that because that's kind of what I want to jump into now is that while this is absolutely amazing and I think it's just so incredible to see how far technology has come that we literally solved a four decades long case via an online genealogy site. I do think it's worth mentioning the controversy and concern that has arisen from this method. Mm -hmm. As a result, many of these genealogical database sites now include certain disclosures and warnings that any DNA you upload may or may not be accessed by law enforcement in efforts to solve cases. I'm just like, "Mm, don't commit crimes. Don't commit crimes. Yeah. I know. I kind of shrug my shoulders too. Like, don't commit crimes. I don't know. Like, I, I have nothing to say about that. I don't feel bad about it at right. all. I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. This is this. It, we're, it's the future, guys. Yeah. This is where we're at. Don't brutalize, assault, and murder people. And then you'll have nothing to worry about except what percentage of Italian you are. On April 24th, 2018, Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested by the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, making him the first public arrest to have ever been made as a result of genetic genealogy. So cool. It's really cool. I actually remember exactly where I was when... Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, where were you? It's really exciting. I was at work. (laughs) (laughs) But I just remember sitting at my desk and watching the live news conference of Anne-Marie Schubert, our DA announcing it and just being like oh my god yeah because prior to his arrest i don't think and this includes myself a lot of people knew about the golden state killer it's kind of weird how it, he it kind of disappeared attention. from the zeitgeist if you will like mm-hmm. it just it stopped happening so people stopped caring about mm-hmm. it and so especially because the murders stopped happening in the 80s it had been 20 plus they're almost 40 years since the last one happened right and so people weren't paying attention and so i was like golden state killer and then once i read a little more i was like oh my gosh yeah i i I know what this one is anyway that was just that was a very cool day for me watching it and i know from what i've heard um from victims and their families they were yeah absolutely thrilled Mm -hmm. that he had finally been caught yeah D'Angelo, speaking of himself as an alter ego that he named Jerry, stated when in a police interrogation room following his arrest, he said this when he was in there alone, quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. 
I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price, unquote. All right. Now we're going to talk about the trial. Mm-hmm. And you followed this a lot more in detail than I did. So please jump in. I feel like you were like watching it live. I was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, but, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to touch on this a little bit. My personal connection. Exactly. I was it, saying yeah. you have a much closer personal connection. Okay. So D'Angelo could not be charged with his string of rapes or burglaries as the statute of limitations had expired for those offenses, Uh, but he was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. His trial was set to take place at the height of COVID mm -hmm. in August of 2020. And due to the immense public interest in the case, the number of victims and victims, family members wishing to attend and speak projected media attendance and obviously due to health safety Mm -hmm. concerns at the time it was determined the dinky sacramento county courtroom would not suffice no so they actually reached out to where i work yes sacramento state and asked to hold the trial in our university union ballroom i'm actually part of the team that helped coordinate this reservation and booking but even i wasn't allowed to be present due to the health and capacity concerns at the time nor Am I sure I would want to be? Sure. I'm not. It just that would be really. Yeah. Hard. Yeah, for sure. But I remember texting you being like, can't you sneak yeah. in? <laughs> just kind of like, <laughs> how hard would it be? I don't know. I, I, I'm joking, obviously. Yeah. But I was like, you set everything up. Can't you just go in and fix like the lighting or something in the room? <laughs> just like, let like, me just fix this up light here. No, <laughs> exactly. On August 21st, 2020, D'Angelo's trial was called to session. A judge, Michael Bowman, began by reading the 20 six charges that D'Angelo pled guilty to and the admissions related to those charges. Other admissions for crimes past the statute of limitations were not part of the proceedings, but they were taken into consideration in the judge's eventual sentence. Mm. And he weighed the overall facts of the cases Mm. present for the people were Anne Marie Schubert, DA of Sac County, Greg Totten, DA of Ventura County, Todd Spitzer, DA of Orange County, Diana Becton, DA of Contra Costa County, Joyce Dudley, DA of Santa Barbara County, Tim Ward, DA of Tulare County, Nancy O'Malley, DA of Alameda County, and Tori Salazar, DA of San Joaquin County. Oh my God. <laughs> and I named all of them because I just, it just goes to show how widespread his crimes and, and reign of terror was there were more than half a dozen district attorneys there yeah over three days 45 victims and family members testified to the pain anger and trauma caused by the golden state killer Mm. one witness debbie domingo mcmullen who was the daughter of one of the murder victims Mm -hmm. of d'angelo said quote i am no longer plagued by images of a masked faceless monster raping terrorizing and bludgeoning my beautiful mother i am not that lost teenager anymore Today, I'm in the room with the pathetic excuse of a man who will now finally be held accountable for his actions, end quote. One other story about the trial that came out was D'Angelo's apparent frailty. And I actually remember us talking about this. I'm so glad we're talking about this. (laughs) There were (laughs) tons of news stories commenting on his weak appearance. If you look... He looked like he was on his deathbed. He looks like shit. Yeah. He looks horrible yeah, yeah. at his trial yeah he was in a wheelchair and he seemed completely incapable of standing when the rest of the courtroom was asked to stand yeah. 
This is thought to have been possibly a strategy of his defense, perhaps, because during the trial, some video came to light of his um, dexterity, if you will. <laughs> uh, just watch this Inside oh. Edition newsreel about it and tell me what you think, Rachel. I know, I, I know you've seen it. I've seen it, but it's been it's been two, three years since I've seen it. So I am so excited to watch this again. Stared out. Now, prosecutors say D'Angelo is faking it. Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert just released this video showing the monster springing up on a table in his cell to fix a light. Here, he's exercising. <laughs> and here, he's wiping the floor with a rag under his shoe. Somebody said there's a method to his madness. And um, I think Mr. D'Angelo is very calculating and cunning and doing whatever he can, whatever's in his own okay. best interest. I remember, I feel exactly the way, well, actually, let me take it back. I was going to say, I feel exactly the way I felt at that time. I still feel that way now. I think that might be incorrect. I think at that time, I don't think, I'm able to like kind of laugh about it now, which is maybe bad. I don't mean to laugh. No, yeah. Uh, I laugh at the ridiculousness of it. I remember back then being like furious because this, it's, oh my God, (laughs) he's essentially doing gymnastics in his cell. yes. He is. Yeah. I mean, he's, it's it's not only impressive for a man that looked like he was on his deathbed during his trial. It's impressive for anyone over the age of 60 to be moving like that. Yes. And then and then to see that juxtaposed to him being wheeled in, unable to stand when the courtroom is asked to stand. And every time attention. he talked, he's like, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Like, like yes, could barely speak. Yeah. And then he's f-ing a, an Olympic gymnast <laughs> in his cell. Yeah, it's. It's like laughable now. It was infuriating at infuriating the time. Infuriating at the time and still infuriating that yeah. he, he put on, he's fake. Yeah. He's evil. Yeah. Through and through. D'Angelo's defense counsel did not try to explain away his crimes, but instead attempted to reduce sentencing based on his character, mm. which I find odd. They brought in many of D'Angelo's family members who spoke to his shining character you know, apart from raping and murdering people. And then finally, D'Angelo was allowed to speak. And this is a direct quote from uh, GoldenStateKillerTrial.com. At that point, Joseph D'Angelo himself was offered an opportunity to address the court. D'Angelo rose from his wheelchair with ease, blasting away any remnants of speculation that he was ill or infirm. Members of the gallery who had brought signs thrust them into the air for him to see. Mm. D'Angelo turned to the judge and slightly to the gallery, paused for a few moments, and removed his COVID-19 mask with nuances that will no doubt become a case study for body language experts. Mm. After another pause, he spoke in a voice that was much clearer and stronger than the put-on voice he used in court for the past two and a half years. He said, I've listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I've hurt. Thank you, Your Honor. End quote. I've watched him make that statement. And I mean, it's just not enough. It's not enough. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, nothing could ever be enough. No, nothing he said would be enough or make up for anything. But like that was not enough. That was not enough. I've listened to you. Sorry, I hurt you. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go do a couple pull ups. So (laughs) don't mind me. (sighs) Judge Bowman said he was moved by the courage and grace and strength of the victims. Mm. And this is a quote from him directed at D'Angelo. Quote, qualities you clearly lack. Ooh. End quote. So that just goes to show you the opinions and overall sentiment of the courtroom and really the community at large. Mm-hmm. 
D'Angelo was sentenced to 11 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole for 13 murders, an additional consecutive life term for 13 kidnappings, plus another eight years for his weapons charges. (sighs) Anything else about the trial you want to add? No, no, other than that, I was trying desperately to get you to sneak your way in and you refused to do it because you wanted to keep your job. (laughs) Uh, And no, just that I've listened to some of the victim statements. And again, it's it's the resilience of these people, because especially the woman that you mentioned it was her mom that this had happened and she to. was in the house she I wasn't she wasn't she, okay she actually her story is really awful she and her mom i mean she's a six i think she was like 16 mm-hmm. at the time and she had kind of run away from home she oh, hadn't okay. been living at home for like two or three weeks mm-hmm. and the last thing she had said to her mom was like get out of my life kind yeah. of and so she was tormented by her yeah. last exchange with her mom but i just i can't imagine that happening to your parent when you were a child how how you live life yeah not in constant fear i mean they do live i, I assume in constant fear yeah yeah i just don't know how one the, the word that i used earlier and shouldn't have used was move on because it's not move on it's yeah. just how you continue to live life yeah it's horrible mm-hmm. d'angelo is now serving time at california state prison corcoran any closing thoughts just I guess my overall sentiments about this whole Mm -hmm. episode are a thank God for DNA and uh, just hopefully new technologies continue to come out that can help solve crimes that have happened in the past and future crimes that inevitably will occur. Mm -hmm. And also I don't understand how a human can be this gross. Yeah. Just evil, evil, evil all the way through. I think your section on the phone calls is like maybe the furthest proof of how evil. Yeah. That's how I felt about it too. Is I'm, it's like, obviously, obviously the rapes and murders are absolutely terrible, but it's the fact that he goes on to purposefully and meticulously torment people after those horrid acts. Decades after. is It's just, I, I don't understand how someone can be that evil. I yeah. don't get it. It's even more unfathomable when this person had daughters well, of his own, a and wife and daughters of his something own. Something I didn't haven't del- delved too deep into is like, and not at all to blame his family for not knowing or seeing mm-hmm. signs or anything. But I'm just like, h- how was he capable of doing that? Yeah, of m- keeping all this so separate. Yeah, I, it's it's crazy. Evil, evil, evil. Before we thank you all for listening to this episode and share with you our normal outro information, we wanted to make sure that you heard who our super exciting season finale guest is next week. Next week, we will have Carol Daly on the podcast. Carol was the first woman appointed as under sheriff with Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, the first woman appointed chair of the board of prison terms, and so many more firsts for women. So many more. But most relevant to today's discussion, she was also designated as one of the lead investigators on the Golden State Killer case. Her involvement in the case truly made a difference because as a woman, the female victims that had been 
horrendously violated by D'Angelo felt more comfortable opening up to her and sharing about their experiences than they did with her male colleagues. Carol will be sharing with us details about her involvement in the Golden State Killer case, as well as a few other infamous Sacramento cases, and showering us all with some female empowerment as she discusses the huge strides she made for women in Sacramento law enforcement and what it was like working in such a male-dominated field. We are so thrilled to have her on the show and cannot wait for you all to enjoy it as well. So be sure to be here next week, same time, same place, to hear all of that. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History. All sources used to put together the episode can be found on our website at hashtaghistory-pod.com. Subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use, share about us with your family and friends, and then give us a rate and review. And be sure to check us out on Instagram. We are at hashtag history underscore podcast. And come join us over on Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you can help support our books and booze supply. You also get access to some behind-the-scenes content and audio automatic 15% off all merchandise and we mail you cards and stickers. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> After a family member Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our valley girl coming out with this California right, drink. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> something like I, <laughs> you know the immediate response is always like that's okay yeah, but, but i'm like, just like unwilling uh, okay. to say that to you <laughs> that's okay oh okay um a sort of reconnaissance i don't know how to say that word reconnaissance i i, I just i just looked ahead to that Matthew sentence McCon- and i was like damn the, the reconnaissance no reconnaissance I don't, I literally don't recon. know how to say that. Okay. Everybody knows what recon is, right? Police be- believe this was part of like, and whoever the narrator is. Yeah. Just it voice. changed over time. It, it did change over time. Guys, that was right? offensive. I know. It was. It was really rough. It was I, hard. It was hard for all accept. of us. Um, but yeah. I, I,